Kaylee, did you know that there are 330 top prize winners from the various versions of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Isn't that something like $330 million in prize money? I think so. And I think maybe ironically, that's the same amount of cash that Americans lost to text messaging scams in 2022. That's up from $131 million in 2021. Do you think those prize winners would mind donating to the funds of the people who lost that money? We could, we can only ask. We could only ask. I wonder if somewhere out there there is a, 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 a text message, giant text message spread from all the winners from all the different versions, or <laughs> they keep in touch with each other. Because I mean, at that point, that's three hundred thirty people is a, that's a pretty big graduating high school class, right? If you thought about it in that terms. Yeah, absolutely. It's well, some sort of secret society, and they have secret handshakes and stuff. Well, the FTC did put out its report, though, on text messaging scams, which is what we're drawing some of these numbers from. And I mean, why why are these text message phishing or smishing, or whatever you want to call them, what are the, why are these scams so effective and why are they growing? Well, texting is super cheap and easy. And not only that, we can't really ignore the sound of a text message. So they're counting on us immediately looking at our phone and our psychology getting the best of us when they offer us something that's too good to be true or play on our sense of fear. It's that idea that I have to respond to a text more quickly than I do an email or a letter that I get in the post, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I I, I have an embarrassing number of unread emails in my personal emails and I'll, even if I'm not going to respond to the text immediately, I'll still look at it way sooner than I will an incoming email. <laughs> what the FTC puts this report out, are they giving any advice? What kind of advice are they giving about how to avoid these scams? Basically, don't click any links in text messages or unexpected text messages and definitely don't respond to them either. Um, Sometimes if you respond to one of these texts, you'll immediately get a robocall of some sort or a scammer, a live scammer, who can then take the attack further. Um, additionally, it's good to report anything suspicious, but in this case, suspicious texts to reportfraud.ftc.gov or to forward the actual text message itself to 7726, which also spells spam. <laughs> and so, I mean, part of where this report comes from is, is this self-reporting. So if you're the victim of identity fraud or identity theft, or even, a, even an attempt, you can go on to the FTC's website and, and make these reports. And so part of what, when the FTC publishes these numbers, they had said that 22% or more than more than one in five of all the reported fraud cases um, that Americans reported last year uh, named texting as the mode of initial contact. That's up a little bit from last year, but last year was pretty high. It gets a 22%. What are some of the more common kinds of scams, Kaylee? So the most common scam only by a tiny margin is something called copycat bank fraud. So Basically, that's a text from your bank saying, hey, we've detected something suspicious. Uh, was this you or not? Often that's something that you would reply yes or no to um, via text. And in this case, this is one of those where you would then receive a call 
And that's exactly where people end up losing money because they give social security numbers, passwords, account numbers to these people thinking it's their bank calling them to reactivate their card or or whatever it is. And it's a scammer who's just taking that information. It's, um, you know, it, whenever I do get an actual alert from either a bank or an insurance company that I do business with, I can't stop myself. I when I when I do call them, I walk them through why I initially thought that their contact was fraudulent, right? So, you know, I got an email saying, click on this link to verify that it was fraudulent. And, you know, I, of course, I use another number and I call the insurance company, whoever it is, and I tell them, uh, and I tell them, hey, you know, I'm calling you. Is there a fraud alert? And they say, yes. And I say, why did you email me? And why did you embed a link in the email? That's exactly what a fraudster would do. Exactly. And then usually me and the very nice person who has had to deal with that have a little conversation about it, but I try to be constructive and I know I could be better, Kaylee. I know I could be better. Well, folks, I am your host, Jack Clabby, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields PA here in Florida. And with me is my co-host, Kaylee Melton. Kaylee is the vice president of U.S. remote publishing teams at Know Before. After a short break, we have an outstanding guest today, Lisa Ventura. She's the founder of Cybersecurity Unity and a very good person to know if you wanted to be a millionaire in the late 1990s and early 2000s. We'll be right back with Lisa Ventura. Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. All right, and welcome back. Our guest today is Lisa Ventura. Lisa, welcome to the No Password Required podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me as a guest today. So, Lisa, can you give us a breakdown of your career path and you know how it led you from getting first getting involved in the world of cybersecurity to founding Cybersecurity Unity? Absolutely. So I spent a number of years in the entertainment industry, um, working with some high profile TV and radio presenters in the UK, one of which was Chris Tarrant, who was the host of uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Um, obviously, I know you guys had Regis Philbin um, for a time as the yes. host of the show there. Um, and I got to see Millionaire go from a format on A4 paper like this, uh, with a working title of Cash Mountain, and it just the success it had all over the world was was phenomenal. Um, but I got to around about 2009, and it was actually my ex-husband who was very high up as a penetration tester, ethical hacker um, here in the UK, and he used to do a lot of high-profile uh, Ministry of Defence and government work, a lot of which he couldn't tell me a lot about because he'd had to sign the Official Secrets Act um, over here, but. I was always really fascinated with the psychology around hacking and the mind of the hacker and, you know, what drives them apart from the monetary aspect, you know, what, what drives them to, to, to do it. And obviously coming up even then with those new and sophisticated, um, techniques and, um, my ex-husband founded a uh, company called Titania Limited, which I ended up joining um, to help him with his um, workload in terms of operations, recruitment, um, running the business, um, et cetera, so that he could continue coding. 
And when a few years later we um, separated and subsequently divorced, I can tell you I was more upset about coming away from the business of cyber than I was about the end of marriage, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but I knew that I wanted to stay in cybersecurity and I did exactly that. So um, I went to do some cybersecurity awareness um, training work with um, BT. And then I worked with um, a handful of other organizations such as um, Proficio, um, Cyborn. I've worked with Pinsent Mason's um, sisters over here in the UK. I've worked with Boost Technology Group, um, Logistics UK, um, the UK Cybersecurity Council. Wow. And I um, now doing some work um, for an organization called um, Qualitest. But around all that, I spotted a gap um, in that there was, there's so much great work over here in the UK being done in the cybersecurity industry. Um, we've got the cyber resilience um, centers that help small businesses and SMEs with their cyber posture. We've got um, the National Cybersecurity Center that does a lot of the technical side of cybersecurity. We have the UK Cybersecurity Council that are working on career pathways into the industry and standards and ethics and chartership um, for the industry. Then we have the cyber clusters and all the um, certification bodies like CompTIA and IC Squared and SANS and so on, all doing great work, but they're very siloed. And a lot of people don't know that organization A is working on a particular piece and organization B might be doing something else. And there's no real joined up cohesion or, or thinking. And that's my um, my aim for cybersecurity unity is to try to go some small way of uniting all these um, different bodies, these organizations that are doing great work and going, you know, look, when there's no competition, we're all in it for the same thing. We all want to play our part and do something to help combat the growing cyber threats. So let's all get together. Let's all collaborate as an industry and you know, just talk about what are the key threats? What are, what's going on? What are the challenges? And how can we together and foster that greater collaboration go some small way um, to coming up with hopefully some small solutions to, to some of these things, never going to get over all of it. Yeah. There are new threats, new attacks, new things coming up practically every second of every day. Um, so there's no way we're going to combat all of it. But I just really want to see that that greater cohesion. Um, so I want to create that overarching, I suppose, directory for want of a word, so that if an organization doesn't perhaps know which facet they need to go for. It's like, well, if you need technical, you go to the National Cybersecurity Center. If you're after information about career pathways, talk to the council. If you're a small business or SME and you're looking for help with your cyber posture and what you need to do to be more cyber aware, go to one of the um, your, your local cyber resilience center. So a lot of what I'm doing with it will also signpost um, to the different areas that the organizations need. Then alongside that, I will carry on with the cybersecurity awareness um, training work that I do. Um, that's something that's really, really passionate to me is teaching organizations um, to be a lot more cyber aware. But I found that the best success with that is to use real world examples that affect the individual. And then yeah. that will cascade down into an organization perspective, because I think if you can really capture someone's 
I suppose, imagination to stop and think for a minute about, oh, my goodness, this really could happen to me. I could you know, potentially have something happen you know, with my online banking or with a lot of my yeah. other accounts and so on. You get people thinking on those real world examples of how it could genuinely really happen to them. I think that will cascade down into an organizational um, perspective as, as well. So they'll be thinking a lot more about how they can play their part to be more cyber aware uh, within the organization that they're working for. Like it can't just be a list of do's and a list of don'ts. Mm. If you're not connected yeah. to something that that could impact them or has impacted them, it makes it a lot harder. Correct. Yeah. What, what, um, yeah. I mean, it may be a cultural difference between mm. the UK and the US, but, you know, or maybe on our side, we're just not as good at uniting the organizations and the public mm. and the private. There's a lot of, in the US, at the federal level and then at the state level, we've got mm -hmm. agencies, private side. Yeah industry specific organizations and they don't collaborate together and some of it's ignorance, some of it's deliberate. Mm -hmm. um, how, how were you able to get the organizations that you've worked with to the table for the greater good in the UK? Like how did it? I think just coming at it from the point of view of, as I said earlier, no competition, we all want yeah. the same thing. But I think as, as, as well, a lot of organizations might be reticent to do that because they might worry about, you know, confidential information or things that they're working on, you know, getting out and so on. I applied Chatham House rules to every meeting and everything that we do. So whatever's um, talked about in a meeting or um, is discussed is absolutely applicable in terms of Chatham House rules. So it just stays where it where it is. And then we can look to cascade some of that wider work and things that we talk about. Um, for example, I'm, I'm currently working on a campaign called Generation Cyber, and that is specifically around um, trying to capture the imagination of the, the general public and bring more people into the cybersecurity industry because I don't know about the US, but certainly here we have a big skills gap um, issue. So Generation Cyber is all around, you know, making cybersecurity an interesting pathway for a career that uh, people might want to to look at. And not just those that are coming out of school, you know, college or university, but career transitioners, um, yeah. people that are perhaps maybe been in the military, but be looking for um, a new career because they've now come out of, of their military career and are looking for their their next step. Um, so it's, it's, it's looking at all those, um, th th those different groups and those bodies. And I think as well, trying to get away from some of the imagery, because I talk to a lot of people about careers in cyber yeah. and they'll go, it's a bit off putting because it just seems to be all, you know, people with hoodies all huddled <laughs> over their computer and all sort of padlocks and, and things. So, um, I'm doing a piece of work as well at the moment on trying to get around a lot of that 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 imagery that could be potentially off-putting to people outside of our industry that might want to come in. Lisa, just for our U.S. listeners, mm. is Chatham House mm. rules, is that what happens at Chatham House stays at Chatham House? Absolutely, okay. yes. Yeah. Right. We, we call that the Las yeah. Vegas principle in the United States. <laughs> yeah. What happens in <laughs> Vegas stays in Vegas. It's in Vegas. <laughs> but that, that's the key. I mean, that mm. is key, right? If you want to have cross collaboration between competitors, between a regulator mm -hmm. and private industry, there has yeah. to be some assurance that if I share this information with you, you're not going to yeah. turn around and use it against me. Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if phase one of cybersecurity mm. unity's mission was, mm. you know, to get the UK stakeholders mm. to work together, it sounds like that's pretty well underway. Mm. 
what would you consider yeah. phase two for cybersecurity unity? I'd love then to start um, looking at different bodies and groups on a more global basis okay. and bring them together as as, as well, so that um, we can start you know sharing that that collaboration on a lot more sort of global scale and looking at things that might to work you know somewhere else and how we can apply you know that in different areas and you know really foster that collaboration on that much bigger scale as as well. I think that's so important. Are there are there strategies or impediments that you see that'll work or hurt you in that process? Um, I I think it's it'll be very much sort of similar to us, but obviously looking at the different cultures and yeah. different ways that other countries are doing things, um, and looking to foster that collaboration through those I guess those differences as as well, because there may be things that we've not thought of that another, you know, organization in another country might be doing that might work, you know, really well and vice versa. So it is all about that collaboration and that cross information sharing for the greater good of protecting the entire globe from the growing cyber threat. A a lot of US entities are particularly cautious about Mm. um sharing information. We're talking about there's personal information that might be yeah. collected in in the UK or Europe across, overseas, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that has the ambiguity and the changing rules about what could be shared and what can't be has mm-hmm. has um, created a lot of challenge in siloing yeah. of information. Now, yeah. obviously, you can share cyber threat intelligence without mm-hmm. sharing personal information. That's yeah. perfectly okay to do. But has the separation of the UK from mm-hmm. the EU? complicated your plans for information sharing or can you still do you think that it's still an accomplishable mission um even in the new political climate i think it's still an accomplishable mission i'm talking to a lot of eu representatives in the cyber field as as well to see how despite the challenges of brexit how we can still collaborate um effectively and with cohesion with a lot of the eu uh, member states that that currently remain um so I don't think it's within the realms of impossibility. Okay. It is going to have its its challenges, but you know, hopefully not as as bad as I thought it would. Good. Just to, to step back a second, we we have to ask you a little more about your work on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. How how did that opportunity arise? Like, how did oh. you find yourself in a position where you were there to work on that? Um. So I. When I was doing my um, my studies, I did English and literary studies, and I, I knew that I wanted to um, to do some form of writing or, or journalism or, or work in the media in in some way. And I went to um, a seminar when I was at the very end of my, um, my my college studies called Careers in the Media, run by a um, a lovely guy, really well spoken um, gentleman called Paul Vaughan, and I just found myself I just went up to him at the end of the seminar and um, struck up a conversation and he said that he had an opening um, to be, help his um, PA as an assistant <laughs> because she was chatting with the workload and um, encouraged me to to apply swap details and I remember typing a CV actually manually typing that's awesome right so I'm showing my age a little bit <laughs> Now, um, oh. this is around 1994, 1995, and I'm typing this CV on a on a typewriter. I mail it in the post. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so really, I'm showing my age now. It was just as email was starting to seep into being that little bit more to mainstream around about the mid-90s, 
sort of onwards, but I yeah. posted my, my CV. It's a I secure tele- form. It's a much more secure form of communication <laughs> yeah. than an email. That is so. true. It's that is true. I got um, a telephone call asking me to go in for an interview and a job. And two days after I started, his PA announced that she was um, leaving to start a new life in Gibraltar because her husband had been offered a job out there. Okay. And she was, and she worked a notice. And at the end of that notice, I just assumed, oh, we'll recruit another PA. And that was it. I was actually kind of thrust into that. Now, bear in mind, I'm only about 22 wow. years old. And suddenly I'm managing Paul's diary, Chris's diary, a lot of the other things for a lot wow. of the other presenters. But with Chris, and again, show my age a little bit more because he used to get a lot of requests in. Can you come on this talk show? Can you do this radio show? Can you do this event? Can you do And we'd get fa- faxes, not emails, faxes, paper like that coming in. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and we just get loads of, of them. But some of them, I just pick up the phone and I just go, Chris, we've had this come in. Do you want to do Room 101? Or do you want to do tonight with Trevor McDonald? And this is the fee and things like that. And then I would go back and I would say to them, well, you know, it is Chris and he's really busy and he's not going to be able to do it for any less than, and I come up with this ridiculous figure thinking they're not going to say yes. And they did. And suddenly Chris is oh, busier, wow. earning more. Oh, so wow. I ended up getting put in in charge of everything that he was doing before millionaire and then millionaire came along and he just went yeah wow. shut his work again wow so, so it's yeah. like saying yes to opportunities and <laughs> yeah and and then a little bit of luck a little bit of saying yeah. yes and then just doing an excellent job yeah yeah that's or just or just for i hate to say it but it i did almost fall into them in the yes i i got the opportunity that was my first my first job to be <laughs> an assistant to his PA to help her with her workload. But after that, I just fell into doing that. There's me thinking he's just going to, he's going to recruit somebody else or somebody else will come along. And that wasn't the case. And I just fell into doing a lot of it. And yeah. (laughs) I have to say to Lisa, just on a personal, my, my older sister was educated in the States, but then got a, a graduate degree in the UK in, uh, English, in, like mm. as if she would be a professor, and then right at the end of that, ended mm. up getting a job opportunity for cable news in the U.S., and that's her career. Similar uh, sort of thing. She yeah. said yes at the end of a seminar <laughs> and was off to the races. So, <laughs> someone must be recruiting mm. out of English programs mm. in the U.K., knowing that they're getting some, they're getting high quality talent. That is that is very cool. Do you ever have regrets about switching to cybersecurity and wishing you had stayed on that side of things? No. No, not at okay. all. I, um, again, it was a, a thing that kind of I went into that I fell into that I didn't really think too much about. I, it got to a point around about 2009 where I did, I did feel at that point I'd gone as far as I yeah. could go with Chris and wanted a new opportunity. And I was looking at other things, um, in the media but then I could also see how my ex-husband was syncing with his workload he's trying to still be a penetration tester he's yeah. trying to run this business he's trying to do everything else around it he's really syncing so for better or worse I took the the opportunity to go into the business to help him and yeah. and develop it that way um, and that's my sort of first foray into into cyber security um, I don't regret it one bit because I've had the most amazing time in this industry since I came into it. Um, 
done work that I just couldn't have ever imagined, you know, doing, um, really enjoy what I do. And if I can just stop one person or one business from clicking on that link or doing something they shouldn't, I'm happy. That's Lisa, my, that's my goal. Because I, I know you look at a lot of this from the perspective of psychology of both mm. the attacker and, and, and mm. the potential victim, but this is, we talk about on the show a fair amount, you know, the sophistication of the hackers. Yeah. What is it? Like, and the regret sometimes is if the threat actor applied 50% of the effort and the training necessary to pull off these attacks to a legitimate business, they'd probably be successful. Absolutely. Right? Why? Yeah. Why doesn't that happen? Yeah. Like. Uh, I Absolutely. I wish I could work that one out as well. I, I agree yeah. because some of them are just getting so, so sophisticated. Um, we have one that's doing the rounds here in the UK um, at the moment, which is actually our WhatsApp. And they will send a WhatsApp message to you and it'll start off with something like, hello, mum, I've lost my phone and I need some, some some money for a new one. This is my new number. Can you transfer some, some, some money? And so many people who are parents have been caught out by wow. that. Wow. Even my own, even my own cousin, she was just out one day, you know, doing what she's doing, gets this WhatsApp message, thinks it's her, her daughter, my, my cousin, oh. um, and does transfer some, some money. Now she got the money back, but not without a fight from her bank and, and, and so on. But, you know, in that moment, she's busy. She gets this message of, I've lost my phone. This is my new number and I desperately need some, some money. You're a parent. What are you going to do? You, yep. you know, you're going to, um, I got it. I got, I, I actually got it literally three days ago. I looked at it and I thought, nice try because my <laughs> only son was stillborn a few years ago. So mm. I'm not a mother. I don't have to. So I'm just like, yeah, nice try block <laughs> off you go. Goodbye. <laughs> I really love getting in those. Um, I don't know if, if you have the same thing happening in the UK, but I've experienced getting roped into some very large group uh, suddenly mm -hmm. on WhatsApp and um, all sorts of random uh, numbers and addresses. Mm -hmm. And it'll be a message that's something about Bitcoin and like investing. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to... Um, add a message after that like everyone who sees this they'll delete it in a second but this is a scam get out <laughs> they're always like oh you're gone from the group bye bye <laughs> they picked on the wrong user that's yeah. what I, it's just like pick anybody else other than you right like you're gonna it's amazing but, but the other one is um ceo fraud so the emails that will pertain to be from CEO of the organization you work for or somebody of in authority in that organization you know can you get these vouchers for me or can you transfer this sum of money for me and and so that and and with the advent I've noticed with the advent of AI tools like ChatGPT and Bard it's getting more one of the bits of advice I will give is look for the spelling look for the grammar but they're using these tools now to write a lot of the the, the messages so yeah. yeah, it's yeah. just one step further all the time. <laughs> if you need me, come see me in person, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, text exactly. me at the last right. minute. Well, yeah. On this show, Lisa, we talk a lot about um, mm. diversity, in particular about bringing yeah. diversity 
into the cybersecurity world. You know, there's one type of diversity that, that we know you have an interest in, you know, we haven't talked about yet on our program. Can you educate us a little bit about, <clears throat> about neurodiversity? Sure. And talk about how you support those who are neurodiverse. Yeah. So I myself am neurodivergent. I was diagnosed to start with, with autism back in 2018 and then subsequently also diagnosed with ADHD and borderline personality traits. Now, they were really clear to state that it wasn't the full-blown borderline personality disorder, but traits, and that those traits came up because I had an upbringing from two very narcissistic parents. So I've been through quite a lot of um, trauma and um, so on, as a result of of that, um, now pretty much estranged from my from my parents, um, sadly um, for that reason, um, because when I started to set healthy boundaries with them, um, the treatment towards me escalated in yeah, a not very good way. Um, so for for me, um, I know, and I've always known that I was different, that I didn't fit in, I struggled socially. I had interests that were nowhere near what all my other peers or, you know, the people I knew um, were interested in and into, and I was obsessed. So, um, for example, I have an absolutely encyclopedic knowledge of the rock band Queen and Freddie Mercury. I am <laughs> absolutely obsessed with both. Um, I became obsessed with um, all things to do with nuclear war and the Cold War period of the 50s to the early 90s as a result of seeing a film about nuclear war in the UK that was broadcast in 1984 called, called Threads. Um, I just have these really weird sort of obsessions to the point of, 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 of nothing else. Um, so when I got my autism diagnosis, I thought, at last, I understand now and I understand why I've struggled to fit in and struggled really socially uh, with, with with people. And also why I've been subjected to so much bullying and abuse my entire life from the moment I started school to now, to literally sort of talking to you now. So I, I get it. I finally understand it. But I felt it wasn't the only thing with me. I felt there was more to to it with, with me because um, I have trouble where my concentration will just absolutely you know go. And it's I know it frustrates my my husband massively when I'll start one one job and it could be really mundane. I might start to load up the dishwasher and then I've just forgotten I've done it and I'll walk away and do something else and there's things still left in the side. It's I do that all the time and it feels like my brain has got a million and one tabs open and they're all competing for my attention. So I had that um, extra assessment in January and sure enough, I also have ADHD um, as well as these borderline personality traits. And I'm currently waiting to try some medication for the ADHD side of things, although I'm in two minds about um, trying it in terms of, is it going to change my personality? Is it not going to I don't want to change sort of too much because I like the creative aspects, um, you know, of what I, in terms of what ADHD brings me. Um, and when I was first diagnosed with autism, I did a lot of research and found that a lot of people that are in cybersecurity may also have neurodiverse um, conditions. They may also be autistic 
or have ADHD or even um, have dyslexia or dyspraxia or any of these other um, neurodiverse um, conditions. Um, but that's actually not a bad thing because it it brings, I think it brings a lot into the cybersecurity um, industry. We're very well suited because we're, we can spot patterns. We can spot things that, you know, somebody else might not necessarily and ordinarily see. We have intense hyper focus, so we're more likely to spot those patterns and, and things like, like, like that. So um, I think we should try to bring in as many people that are neurodiverse as possible into um, cybersecurity industry industry and that's where i'd focus a lot of my work and awareness raising um, as well i love that i am um, i'm neurodiverse myself and also got a an adult diagnosis of mm-hmm. autism and um adhd so i very much understand and commiserate <laughs> with all the things you're saying for sure um and i think i don't know i i you know, in the old days of cyber, where all of those images came from of guys in hoodies and locked in the basement and things like that. Um, I think that was like the first wave of seeing how great this industry is for people who are neurodiverse, because of course, um, you know, back then they didn't think that autism affected females as much Correct. because, you know, it shows up differently for us. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that cyber is really the perfect place for neurodivergent brains for sure. Absolutely. And you say as well that it's um, it was always thought of that if it affected more um, males and females, um, women are far better at masking their differences and their traits um i i used to mask also i would hide my interests i would try to observe other people to see what they were doing and then try to do that in terms of fitting into social situations um so i think that that masking is is very prevalent um far more so with uh, with, with women than with men Yeah, absolutely. I I remember at a point in college realizing that I was spending more time out in public listening to other people's conversations and like making note of how to make small talk and things like that. Mm -hmm. And oh, wait, most people don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. What can companies that are trying to recruit diverse talent do better to support neurodiverse employees? I think for for me, it's there's no one size fits all approach, and every single um, neurodiverse person is is different in their needs and what they need to support them, you know, in the workplace. And certainly, I can speak from my own experience. I cannot work in an office. I actually learned that before my diagnosis in 2015, and even before the pandemic hit. And I cannot do five days in fact i can't even do a day in in the office i cannot cope with the sensory overload of all the noise and the phones ringing and somebody coming up to you every two minutes and you know i one time i I remember i put my headphones um i put my headphones in and um was was, oh no get those headphones off you can't have your headphones on i'm like i'm just trying to keep the sound out i'm not being 
yeah, antisocial. I just trying to keep out the the, the, the sound. Um, and that was when I was at at, at BT. I don't think I think because obviously back even then, sort of 2013, 2014, there wasn't as much awareness around yeah. diversity. So, and, and I certainly didn't know even then that I, I was neurodiverse. Um, but I would really struggle with it. And I would get to, to Friday and I'd get home and I would be beyond exhausted. Yeah. And by the time I got to feeling relatively okay, it was Sunday night, but I'd have to do it all over again the next day for an entire week. And I actually went to working from home when I got my, um, I've always had dogs, but I got a new dog and she was more of a challenge when I homed her um, as a rescue in, in 2015. So I ended up uh, working from home more to be more on hand um, because of settling uh, her in and found I actually was better, much more productive, better in my own space, um, could have everything the way I wanted, didn't have horrible noise or you know, interruptions or, or things. So yeah. I knew then I can't work in work in an office. Um, and I've always sought, you know, roles or, or contracts or things that I've been able to work from home, but go out to meetings or conferences or events um, whenever I've, I've needed to do them. So that's a, a, a big one um, for me. So I'd say just, just, you know, talk to your those others and listen to what they have to say and what they need and if they need headphones to be able to concentrate or need to drown out that sound they're not being antisocial they're not being anything else other than just being able to focus fully they need to drown out that 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 sound and, and have the headphones um in so yeah talk talk to them and and, and see what their individual needs are well, Lisa, thank you so much. We're going to take a, a short break now. And when we return, we'll have our lifestyle polygraph. So please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. Welcome back. As many of you know, the lifestyle polygraph is a test used by the federal government to determine if a person is worthy of learning some of the nation's most important secrets. Here, we use this technique for slightly lower stakes to determine whether our guest can join our fantasy cybersecurity squad. Lisa, are you ready for the lifestyle polygraph? Absolutely. Bring it on. Awesome. So number one, what is the greatest work-related day you've ever experienced? The day that I received a letter in the post in mid-May this year informing me that I'd been awarded an MBE, which is Member of the British Empire, in the King's Birthday Honours List for Services to Cybersecurity and Diversity and Inclusion. Um, I've done so much work i've i've won awards in the pastors as well um for example i'd, I'd won sc magazine's outstanding contribution to Cybersecurity award in 2019 and i thought i've got no ch I, I didn't go because i thought i've got absolutely no chance i'm up against ian glover from crest and um Stu hurst who was at just eat at the time and and, and really you know high profile people I thought i've got no chance and i won that award and when I got that letter, this is a true, true story. When I got that letter, my first thought was, this is definitely a scam of some sort, because <laughs> that's what you think. But there's a phone number on the top. So I thought, well, I'll give the number a call and 
I'll just I'll just see, but I'll do that. The, we have a thing called one four one that'll withhold your number when calling another. So I did that to withhold my number, and it was a very well spoken lady that answered. And then in that second, I thought, oh my goodness, this actually might be real. And she confirmed <laughs> it was. And we had a bit of a chat, and she said, "You're not the only one to phone to check whether this is um, genuine or or not." When my husband got home from from work, I said, look, I've had this letter, but if I tell you, you can't say anything about it until it's um, the, the list is published on the 17th of June. And I showed him and he said, you should have known that this wasn't a scam. Just look at the quality of the paper that's been paid for by taxpayers' money. <laughs> I said, they'll go to any lengths you don't, you just don't know. <laughs> Oh my god. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you so is there um outside of being nominated, is mm. there any sort of like ceremony or title yeah. or award? Yeah. I I get to um have MBE after my name, which I've um put on, on there. And yes, I'm waiting to get a date where I will be invited to either Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle. Um, to accept my MBE award from a senior member of the royal family. Could be King Charles, it could be Prince William, or it might be Princess Anne. One thing's for sure, it won't be Prince Harry because you've all got him. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh, that's so exciting. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. No, I, I, I can't wait. I still can't believe it now. It's been over, it's been nearly a month um, since I was able to announce it and, and nearly two months since I had the letter. And I I still can't believe it. And my imposter syndrome is still through the roof over it. Mm. It's meant for somebody else. It was never meant for, for, for me. Um, and again, I've, I've done a, a lot of awareness raising around imposter syndrome and even co-founded an awareness day. Um, around the, the phenomenon of, of imposter syndrome just to you know, raise some awareness and have those conversations so that people know they're not the only ones that are suffering that or, or going through it mm -hmm. I love that um, okay I think I think number one is a pass for sure <laughs> <laughs> number two if you could live in one of your favorite shows for a week which one mm -hmm. would it be Oh gosh. I you know, I love sci-fi. I'm a huge huge sci-fi fan, but if there's one show I would love to to live it and I think it's because of the writing of it that J Michael Straczynski of what he came up with and how it all linked together and that's um Babylon 5. Mm. And I know it's a few years old, but oh, I love that show and the writing and how it was, was put together and how you have to watch it from episode one because something yeah. from that might come into you know season four even or, or something it, it it's it links together so well he's he's got such a a great ability with with, with his um with his screenwriting and i would love to to, to live on on babylon five and be part of that whole environment <laughs> or like a, a, a common question that at least US-based cyber people talk about a lot is Star Trek versus Star Wars. It's sometimes, mm. you know, the cliche is Star Trek is for the peaceful person trying to get people to cooperate and Star yeah. Wars is for the warlike adventurer, right? So it's sort of like a, a, a bizarre, yeah. I don't think it's a fair assessment, frankly, right? But Babylon 5, I, 
I mean, I remember when it first came out, like I meant mm. and, and loved it and thinking of it now as it was, I mean, Deep Space Nine, Star Trek sort of had a similar thing, but it was about diversity and people yeah. who were different getting along together and choosing to be among many other themes. Um, but it does echo in a, with a lot of what we've talked about in terms of at least let's make our art at least some projection of how we want our mm. society to be like. And we can all get along even if we're dramatically different from one another. Yeah. And that can be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Jack, I didn't know you were a bit of a Trekkie. <laughs> I, 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 I've gotten better with time and I, and I do like Star Wars, but Star Trek, it starts from a place of scarcity has been eliminated, right? Which is such a neat thing to aspire to, hmm. you know, like we have yeah. abundance now and we can share it. We don't need hmm. to fight with each other anymore. And I don't, you know, when we engage in fiction and, and like we're trying to read, I, I don't always want to hear about like post-apocalyptic stuff or war. I want to think, well, I'd like to move towards a society where we all got along with each other and didn't need to fight all the time, right? Like, let's yeah. at least fantasize about that existing. <laughs> right. No, I get that. I, I, I love Star Trek and Star Wars, but I must confess, I do like a lot of those old dystopian films from years ago, <laughs> Charlton Heston, Soylent Green. Last, last, I, I remember I had my Facebook banner as the Soylent Green sort of poster because it was 2022. It was That's the awesome. year of Soylent Green. <laughs> it's just... Yes. Yeah, it's an awesome. It's a great point. It's like, well, where are we going next? This is yeah. where I guess we're going. <laughs> You're right. Cause we've got to, we've also got to predict the worst case scenario and, yeah. and so we can see the signs of it. But you're, when you start Absolutely. to see the signs of it, then there's a little bit of panic. Right. Okay. Yeah. When we ran out of toilet paper in the United States at the beginning <laughs> of the pandemic, I think people were thinking, what are we going to do? We had exactly the same. I'd never seen anything like it in the, um, in the supermarkets here. <laughs> they were just clearing the shelves of it like and fighting over it like drives i just thought oh my, i just can't believe we've come to this <laughs> right and I, like if if i had tried to predict what it would be that flew off the shelves and caused fights during a pandemic yeah. toilet paper would not have even been in no. the top five no. <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> i was ordering stuff like from foreign countries that was like coming in giant roll and then you know, it all subsided pretty early and we were stuck with this. I remember at one point it was like a wheel of cheese you'd see in a, you know, just a giant Russian toilet paper roll or something like that. It was before, And I, I think at one point we were looking at it as a family and we were like, we need to find someone whose house we want a toilet paper. Like we're not, no one's going to use this, right? This is poor quality Russian toilet paper, wherever it came from. I think we still have it. I think it's like our backup toilet paper. It's probably three or four years old. So Maybe I'll bring it on next episode. So we can all see how big yeah. it's gotten over time. You, you're going to have that for the rest of your life. That's right. It's going to be, you're going to decorate my casket with it. That's the plan. <laughs> all right. Number three. Over the past few years, Ted Lasso has been the American window into British culture. At one point, the show referenced American candy, something we call candy. <laughs> If you if you are having a stressful day and need something sweet, what kind of candy do you reach for? Anything that has salted caramel in it. I am mm. absolutely addicted to and, and I will literally if I see when I'm shopping something that's come out that's new but it's salted caramel related or flavor in the trolley it goes. I will try <laughs> anything 
that's to do with salted caramel. <laughs> are you? Yeah. Could be. Go on. Are you a, a soft caramel or like a hard caramel? Like a no, soft, soft, soft okay. def definitely soft, uh, but salted. It's got to be the salted caramel. I don't. I, I, I swear, I don't even go for or, or like much of normal caramel. Now, if it's not salted caramel, I don't want to know. <laughs> There's I, something the, about the saltiness and the sweet mm, that's just, mm. ugh. There's and you know, like, when I first, go sorry, go. I was going to say, when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, that is going to be not nice at all <laughs> until I tried it. And then I was like, oh, that's it. I'm done now. No, the caramel will do. <laughs> do you, uh, how do you feel about Werther's caramel? Are you okay with that? Or I, that's like the hard caramel that comes in a little packaging. Do you like that at all? Uh, not especially. No, yeah. I'm not a. Um, we we do get that over here. I think I've tried it once okay. or twice, but I, it generally the 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 ad the adverts over here tend to associate it with you know, your your grandparents that will have it and then give <laughs> exactly. the grandchildren and stuff. So yeah, I think that's probably why I've shied away from it a bit. <laughs> and, and it's like one of those things. The first time you see it, you think it's going to be soft, and then it it becomes hard. It's and not you're just so angry, yeah. and I, I and I. I remember, you know, every time that happened, I think, why am I so angry about this? I need to not be so, I, I want to feel less about this. I don't know why I'm so upset, but salt, soft caramel beats hard caramel. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know why when they invented the soft caramel, people continued making hard caramels. Right. It doesn't make sense yeah. to me. All right. I'm glad we're in alignment on that, everybody. <laughs> so number four, what was your favorite toy when you were a kid? Scale electric, which you guys know as slot cars. Um, when <laughs> when I uh, when I was about five, my um, my 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 dad used to work as a mechanical engineer at the factory, and they used to have um, this thing where they'd have like a pop up toy shop thing on the factory site for the workers to get toys for the kids and so on. And he came home with a scale electric. And I absolutely loved it. And it sparked off a huge interest in cars and Formula One racing um, that I still have uh, to, to this day. Um, but I do wonder if he actually got the scale electric thinking it was going to be for himself and that I probably <laughs> wouldn't be interested in it and go for a doll or something. But no, no, no. Once that scale electric was out, that's it. And you know, I've got I've got one now. My husband my husband bought us one. Um, it's Back to the Future versus Kit Car. And oh, that's amazing. What? That's amazing. Yeah. So it's got a little kit car and a little Back to the Future car, and they're racing around the uh, the, the scale electrics because we have a um, a retro room, and this is this room is our pride and joy. And we um, and my my husband actually scoured eBay to find all the old machines that we used to have. You wow. know, when we were growing up so we've wow. got like the commodore 64s we've got all the amigas we've got you know the spectrum we've got a, 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 an old apple mac we've got all these machines and he also managed to find on ebay my first computer that got me into using computers when i was eight which is the texas instruments wow. ti499 where i would play space invaders and what they called Munchman, which was actually their version of Pac-Man. And, <laughs> and I'll go in and I'll switch it on and I'll go in and, and play them sometimes. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so cool. That's incredible. And, and are they, and they function or you guys, you guys get them oh, to they work? Function. Wow. Yeah. 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 No, wow. they, they, they all work. Um, I think he 
did some refurbishment work on a on a few of them, but oh. no, they all they all turn on, they all work, and and you can still play games on them and do coding and the, you know, all sorts of stuff on them. Wow! Yeah. Wow! <laughs> can I ask who is generally faster? Is it the DeLorean or is it Kit in the in the racing? Is there a, um, between the two of them? It's, I, it's it's usually the DeLorean if they don't okay. sort of crash or something like that when I'm doing it. <laughs> I have to try and be careful to get them around the corners. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Final question. Mm -hmm. You enjoy 1980s soap operas. Mm -hmm. Honestly, who doesn't? Amazing. <laughs> Big hair, the drama, the filters on the, yep. on the, uh, <laughs> the frames. Um, where did this love come from and what are your favorites? Definitely Dallas. Um, where it came <laughs> from? I'm not, I'm not sure. I guess it was just something that we watched in our house. Yeah. We, each week it used to be at nine o'clock on a Thursday here in, in, in the UK and Dallas definitely is my all time favorite one. I love Larry Hagman and how he played J.R. Ewing. And what I love so much about it is just when you think that character J.R. Ewing could not stoop any lower than he does. He <laughs> just, I, he's just, <laughs> Oh, he just played it so, so well. Um, but I then got into um, Dynasty and Knott's Landing and, and Falcon Crest. That's probably my next favorite, actually, Falcon Crest. Um, I loved, absolutely loved all of those. And watched the Dallas reboot when they brought it back um, about 10 years ago. So I think it came back and watched all of that. And I was really gutted when they only did three seasons and, and finished yeah. it. Um, but my funny enough, my husband's the same. He loves Dallas as much as I do. So we have watched it from episode one right all the way through That's to the end. Awesome. And we do want to make a trip to the um states, specifically to Dallas, to go to see South Fort Ranch, because I think you can still still do that. So that's on our that's on our bucket list. <laughs> what what is it about it? I mean, because it's so different from your day Ooh. job, right? It, yeah. What is it about it that that makes it attractive to you? Like that, I think I say it's just the, the characters and what they do to each other. And I say J.R. in particular, he's just such a excuse the terminology, but he's just such a badass in just what he does and the way he treats people and and, and stuff. And yeah, just just hooked on it. <laughs> <laughs> There's like generations of people in Texas who took it still who take who don't see it at a remove, but see it as sort of the template for how you're supposed to act. True. I mean, like, I think yeah. people take it unironically or, or but yeah. it, it is such a, Lisa, I agree with you that the acting, it, it's hard to do and it's so good, particularly, you know, and they're doing it for, you know, it's a lot of content they're putting out too. It's Incredible. It. And I think I, I like the dynamic with, you know, the evil JR. But you had Bobby, who was the conscience, you know, the good one, the one that was always pulling him up whenever you know, he done a bad deal or you know, was going to do something that he shouldn't or, or whatever. And I really, really like that dynamic with the two of them. Um, I met Patrick Duffy as as well. He he came to um, Worcester Cathedral, where I live in the UK, to do a, a, a talk. And I actually went up and met him after just I got a photo with Patrick Duffy, oh, which awesome. is which is one of my prized, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, because I think when they rebooted it and they undid spoiler mm. alert, right when they undid the death, and he's coming yeah. out of the shower, I think in that one scene, that's yeah. like iconic. 
the Patrick Duffy is, is still around kind of thing. And, and it was a dream. Or That's amazing. What a great, what a great um, photo to have and experience and memory to have. Uh, well, Lisa, I think, Kaylee, what do you think? I think Lisa passed and can join our fantasy cybersecurity team. Oh, absolutely. Yay. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you for joining us. Um, if our listeners want to connect with you, mm-hmm. maybe on social media or on a website, mm-hmm. how, how can they do that? Absolutely. So my website is lisaventura.co.uk, or you can reach me via um, the Cybersecurity Unity one as well, which is csu.org.uk. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, or even Threads, now, all these major um, platforms. And you can find me as um, Cyber Geek Girl, which is my uh, call sign. Cyber Geek Girl. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the show. But first, Kaylee, what did you learn today? Today, I learned that even amazingly inspirational and successful people, even those nominated to the Order of the British Empire, still experience imposter syndrome. And that just makes me feel a lot better. And I, I learned, too, from, from her lessons uniting public and private uh, entities and, and companies in, in the UK that, you know, the recipe is the same for what has been successful in pockets here in the US. It's, you know, emphasizing that we're not competing to stop cyber threats. We're not competing, right? We can all do yeah. this together. Uh, and two, that, that combination of we're going to do this in confidence with one another and we're going to try to create an environment of non-competition or, or non-enforcement. Uh, when we share information with government entities, you know, is the recipe that works, at least until we find a better one. Um, So for the entire uh, No Password Required team, I want to first say thank you to Serena Gandhi, who is the co-host of the Do We Belong Here podcast for helping us out today with production. Uh, And I also want to thank you for listening. uh, And we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. And if you know someone who might like it, please share it with them. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. And a special thank you goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. All opinions expressed by the No Password Required podcast participants are their own and do not exclusively represent the views and opinions of Cyber Florida.